Welcome everyone to another episode of Plum Peeps. Furf and I are extremely excited to bring you our second episode in our COPD series in collaboration with the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly. Today, we will be talking about all things related to COPD exacerbations, and I know I've been looking forward to this all week. What about you, Furf? Yeah, I've been looking forward to it to the, since the moment episode one ended. I feel like I had such a good time and learned so much. So it is so great to be talking to just experts in the field and about a problem that I see every day, you know, and we see in the hospital and in clinic every day. Totally, Ferb. Um, I couldn't agree more and excited to meet our guest today in another great discussion. So let's get started with our introductions. Yeah, we're very excited to be joined by Brad Drummond. Brad is an associate professor of medicine at UNC School of Medicine. He's also the Associate Division Chief of Outpatient Services there and the Co-Medical Director of the Pulmonary Specialty Clinics at UNC. On top of that, he's the Director of the Obstructive Lung Diseases Clinical and Translational Research Center. And he's also the incoming Assembly Chair for the ATS Clinical Problems Assembly. Brad, I don't know how you have the time to do all this stuff, but it's a real pleasure to have you on. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, it's definitely uh, a lot of coffee. It's a secret, but you know, I really appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart uh, related to COPD. So I appreciate the chance and it's great to see everybody or hear everybody. Yeah. And I hope you won't hold it against me in this March Madness time that I went to Duke for my undergraduate. Uh, we can still have this podcast. That's okay. Okay, cool. Just had to have that out there. <laughs> we got March Madness out of the way, coffee out of the way to make room for our next guest, Dr. Allison Lambert. Allison is a pulmonary and critical care physician at Providence Medical Group, where she is also the director of the Adult Cystic Fibrosis Program and co-leads the Therapeutic Development Network. She has a broad expertise and it spans both cystic fibrosis non-CF bronchiectasis, as well as obstructive lung disease, including COPD. Allison is also a committee member in the CP Assembly, and we thank you for being here today with us, Allison. Yeah, thanks for inviting me. It's fun to work uh, with Brad again, too. We worked together during our time when I was a fellow at Hopkins. I have to say I'm from Spokane, so obviously a Zags fan. Um, dressed my kids in Zags gear and sent them off to school today. So, but I, I'm grateful to the organizers for this. I've been following you on social media and I think podcasts are a great way to stay up on, um, CME. So hats off to you guys for putting this together. Thank you both. And before we get started, we'll just do our quick disclaimer. As a reminder, the podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice and the views we express today do not reflect the opinions or policies of our respective employers, and details in this case may have been changed to remain HIPAA compliant. Let's get started with the case first. Yeah, so we just wanted to give everyone a refresher. I'm sure you listened last week, but for a reminder, on our last COPD episode, we were joined by doctors Wasim Labiki and Bob Weiss, and they walked us through the initial diagnosis and management of COPD. During that episode, we met a 60-year-old woman with a history of active tobacco use and hypertension. She had a post-bronchodilator FEV1 over FVC ratio of 0.55 with an FEV1 that was 58% predicted. Her symptoms were assessed on the MMRC scale to be a 1, which was shortness of breath walking up a hill, and the COPD assessment tool, the CAT score, uh, which scored, she scored a 9. She'd had one COPD exacerbation in the past year requiring hospitalization, and based on this was diagnosed with gold C COPD with grade two airflow limitation. We discussed her management and she was started on a LAMA and an as needed SABA. And she was counseled about smoking cessation and also advised on inhaler technique and pulmonary rehab. When we join her today, she is unfortunately in the emergency department. 
She's cut down on her smoking, but is still having about three to five cigarettes a day. She's been using her Lama regularly, uh, but in the last week, she's been having more shortness of breath and increased coughing, and she's bringing up thick yellow sputum. She's been using her albuterol every four hours in the last week with temporary relief, but she just ran out and has ongoing symptoms, so she came to the emergency department. Thanks so much, Firth. And I think we always like to start episodes with um, starting with the basics. And we know from the last episode that COPD is a disease characterized by dyspnea and that coughing can be common for some patients. We also discussed that it is a disease characterized both by chronic symptoms and can be manifested with flares or exacerbations. Allison, what defines a COPD exacerbation and how do you go about making the diagnosis? So when I'm thinking about whether a patient's experiencing a COPD exacerbation, there are sort of three main clinical symptoms that I'll be asking a patient about during the interview. Are they experiencing more than usual dyspnea from their baseline that's been sustained? And then also has their cough frequency or severity increased and then their sputum production volume or purulent nature of it uh, worsened? So those are sort of the three categories of symptoms that you would think about. The ERS and ATS definition from their guideline statement says that in a patient with underlying COPD, exacerbations are episodes of increased respiratory symptoms, specifically dyspnea, cough, and sputum production and sputum purulence. Sometimes you'll see in the some of the definitions like worsening of symptoms requiring an escalation of therapy or treatment with certain medications, but those are really things that we use on the post-hoc side, you know, the, that we've already made a clinical decision to go ahead and treat those patients. So it's not going to be something you can use up front. Now, your patient may say, I'm needing my rescue inhaler more frequently, and that could be helpful, tip off to something that's going on. And then as far as sustained, that time duration varies in my mind. Like if it's a short duration, but a severe increase, then I might go ahead and think about defining this as an exacerbation and initiating therapy. But if someone's, you know, mowed their lawn and then they feel worse briefly and then they recover after that, then I wouldn't necessarily characterize that. Those are sort of some day-to-day variability that are acceptable. So this does require a patient to be self-aware recognize that they're having symptoms. And there are studies to show that up to 50% of exacerbations go undetected and untreated. And do they even have someone to call? I've had patients sometimes say, I can't get in to see my primary care. So I just either didn't let anyone know or waited for things to really worsen and then only consider escalating treatment when I feel like I need to go to the ER or urgent care. So I'm constantly trying to encourage people, give us a call. We don't mind kind of doing some phone medicine to help you work through this, but don't wait until you till things really progress. I'm so glad, Allison, you mentioned that definition of needing treatment. I always find that so interesting, like the circular logic we get in sometimes. Like, well, this is an exacerbation because I'm saying I'm going to treat you for an exacerbation. So it's helpful just to identify those limitations. Thanks so much, Allison. Yeah, and I think hearing that, you know, up to 50% of exacerbations may be missed for the reasons that you said, um, I think it's pretty eye-opening for me. And I do have a follow-up question for you, Allison, but before that, I wanted to see Brad had any thoughts about just the impact of COPD exacerbations in general. We didn't get to cover that on our last episode with Wasim and Bob. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, you always sort of start the podcast with the most important points you know, and I think this is probably one of the things that I try to stress when I'm talking to people about COPD. Um, you know, we, we tend to think of COPD as this, oh, the disease course has these flares and that's part of the normal disease process. And when a patient's hospitalized for an exacerbation, like the patient we're talking about here, that's a sentinel event. 
that is something that I consider almost like a lung stroke, right? You know, heart disease, for example, we don't say, oh, they got admitted for a heart attack. That's just part of their heart, their coronary artery disease. You know, that's, that's a, that the gravitas of that is much more important. And, and I think that this has been shown very nicely in a paper by one of our colleagues, Peter Lindenauer, it was published in 2018 in the Blue Journal. Um, and he actually, he and his group looked at the U.S. Medicare analysis of over, of over 2 million beneficiaries. So like the generalizable population that we always try to identify in these studies. And for patients who are hospitalized with a bona fide COPD exacerbation, 26% were dead in the next year. So one out of four people are dead in the next year after a hospitalized exacerbation. And if they required non-invasive ventilation, which we'll talk about as sort of the mainstay of therapy, 40% of those people were dead in a year. So I think when people sort of say, oh yeah, you know, they were hospitalized for a couple of days and they went home, we have to consider that as really a lung stroke. And, and it's an important thing to think about. And just remembering that when you're seeing that patient in the hospital, even if they're not in the ICU, one out of four of them will be dead in a year based on this, you know, Peter Lindenauer study. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think probably Firf and I and a lot of our listeners will now be using lung stroke when we're in our ICUs and talking about COPD exacerbations. Let me go copyright that real fast. I'll be right back. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, definitely. I mean, I feel like it is. These are one of these presentations that becomes rote at some point. You know, it's like, oh, syn syncope workup, COPD exacerbation. But you're right to recognize the the impact it really has on the patient's prognosis is huge. Yeah, and in no other chronic disease would we, you know, DKA, right? So, I mean, it, think about any your chronic disease of interest, and we don't sort of expect those to be, oh, that's just part of the process, right? That represents uncontrolled, unstable disease. A great framework to think about things. And, you know, going back to our patient, I think she definitely fits the picture of having a COPD exacerbation. And one thing that I always learned, and I was in the Mickey last week, and we had someone coming in with a COPD exacerbation, and I tried to have the house staff identify a trigger, you know, COPD, whether it's sickle cell, whether it's a CF exacerbation. So I wanted to spend some time on that. And Brad, what are some common triggers for COPD exacerbations and how important it is that, um, that you think we identify a trigger for these patients? Yeah, it's, I think this is an important point because if we can identify a trigger, then that helps us understand how do we need to modify the patient's you know, therapeutic plan to better control their disease. Far and away, the most common cause, you know, some studies upwards of 75, 80% of acute exacerbations of COPD are due to infection. I, I think that there's some excellent epidemiological data proving this point in the last two to three years of our least favorite word of the pandemic COVID, right? So we have seen a 50% reduction in COPD exacerbations during the COVID pandemic. And this is across multiple cohort studies that simply is related to avoiding infections, people wearing masks, social isolation, barrier protection, all those sorts of things. So that's proof of all the other data that we have pre-COVID that, you know, again, the vast majority of exacerbations are related to infection. And probably the split's about 50-50. So, you know, 50% of that 80%, so 40%, are viral, things like rhinovirus, RSV, flu, non-COVID-19 coronavirus, which was around before, and then the other 40% is bacterial. So things like H flu, strep pneumo, Morexella, you know, those sorts of things. So I think that most commonly, if you're going to have to put your nickel down on something, it's going to be an infectious etiology, although we may not ever identify it if it's a viral process. Um, so what about that other 20% that we can identify something? It's often about the environment. So changes in air pollution, interestingly, ambient temperature changes. And I think we're seeing a lot of this right now as we're transitioning from winter to, to spring. There's actually some data that shows that if your 
temperature changes or your, your, your temperature changes by more than five degrees Celsius, that independently increases your risk for uh, COPD exacerbation. So these sort of fluctuations in humidity, um, those are, they're clearly at least associative. The other big thing that we need to think about, and you know, this is on every differential for every internal medicine resident for everything with, with shortness of breath is pulmonary embolism. So uh, the VAT, probably one out of four unexplained exacerbations have a pulmonary embolism underlying the etiology. So I think that that's, you know, infection, 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 environmental triggers, and then pulmonary embolism will get you most of the way as far as the common causes of an exacerbation. That's great, Brad. And what about any kind of important mimickers that you think we should be aware of, our listeners should also be thinking of? Yeah. As I, and I think, as I mentioned, the, the pulmonary embolism is one we always want to consider. But again, that's on every differential for every sort of acute <laughs> cardiopulmonary complaint for most of our patients. So it's often thought about uh, you know, these patients are at increased risk for pulmonary embolism. They have a, you know, sedentary lifestyle. They may have comorbidities that increase their risk. The other big thing that we have to remember is not everyone who has COPD has COPD as the cause of their acute respiratory complaints, right? So there's a sort of this anchoring bias that they come in with a label and that's what they have, right? So remember, not everything that wheezes is COPD. It could be congestive heart failure exacerbation. It could be a pneumothorax or a cardiac arrhythmia. You know, all of these things can present with acute worsening shortness of breath, wheezing, you know, those sorts of things. So I think some of those, ma those major uh, acute, almost cat pericatastrophic, if you will, sort of pulmonary or cardiac issues around the differential. The other things we think about, you know, uh, congestive heart failure exacerbation is, is very common. Pneumonia, pleural effusions, um, it's really important just to keep that differential wide open because just because they have a label of COPD on their chart when they hit the emergency room door and they're short of breath doesn't mean we have an answer. Yeah, that's awesome. I feel like for our case episodes, that's always our main point is just got to keep the differential broad for a long time. These patients are have risk factors for other diseases. And I, you know, I know masks now is a whole topic, but it's so interesting what you mentioned. If you approach people before the pandemic and said, hey, I have an intervention that could decrease COPD exacerbation by 50%, it would just be a no-brainer, but a, a really interesting observation. Well, and it's actually such a compelling piece of evidence that the Global Initiative for Obstructive Lung Disease is one of our main treatment guidelines, the gold guidelines in 2022 actually included masking as a method to reduce exacerbations. Wow. Amazing. So we uh, did an episode um, we, in the past, even before our COPD series, where we talked about the acute management of asthma exacerbations. And, and those are going to have similar, although not exactly the same phenomenology. And one key takeaway we had about that episode was that you have to determine right away the severity of the exacerbation since it's a clinical diagnosis and there's really just a wide range that the syndrome can take. So Allison, what information would you use for our patient next to determine the severity of the exacerbation that she's had? Yeah, I mean, I think some of this will again be determined on the post-hoc side. Like we can look back and say that was a severe exacerbation. You were admitted to the ICU. You required non-invasive uh, mechanical ventilation. So up front, if you're talking with your patient by phone, they're noticing a sustained increase in their symptoms and they've been able to self-manage with their short-acting bronchodilators at home, and this results in resolution or recovery back to baseline, we would characterize that as a, or define that as a mild uh, exacerbation of their COPD. In contrast, if someone has worsening symptoms or more severe symptoms and you're thinking about treating with steroids or antibiotics, then we would consider that moderate. And, and then severe in this case would be someone requiring ER or healthcare utilization, um, ER visits, urgent care visits, hospitalization. So again, kind of a post hoc nature of the definition. So utilizing, just following the course and initiating treatment and assessing responsiveness will 
will ultimately reveal how severe things will become rather than really inform your kind of decisions up front. I think we talk a little bit later about some of those things that might help you figure out, like, do they need to go to the hospital? Do they need to go to the ICU? And I think just to really underscore Brad's comments about comorbidities, I think that that can often determine the nature of the course for patients. So does this, is this COPD exacerbation secondary to a new pleural effusion or pneumonia that may worsen their severity of presentation and require hospitalization and inpatient management? Or are they experiencing, you know, a comorbid CHF exacerbation? Have you started steroids and unmasked uncontrolled diabetes? So some of these other things can really kind of escalate uh, severity of illness and guide location of treatment. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I think um, always important to remember for these patients that most COPD patients will eventually die of cardiovascular disease given their exposures and their risk. And so we have to, you know, think about the patient beyond just their chronic lung disease. But yeah, that, that's super helpful. I agree that I feel like a lot of this is you know, post hoc, but up front, we have to make a decision about the person in front of us of where they're going. Are they going home? Are they coming into the hospital? So that was super helpful to consider their comorbidities. Any other things we should consider when we're deciding where we should treat this exacerbation? Yeah. So, I mean, if, ideally, if you're able to evaluate the patient in person, that's excellent, right? Now you have a chance to look at like, are they hypoxemic? Are they tachycardic, tachypnic? What's their work of breathing look like? How are they moving air? I mean, those kinds of things will certainly help you figure out, you know, do they need to be sent to the emergency room, initiate some therapy, assess responsiveness and determine whether admission to floor versus ICU is warranted. For patients with more severe lung function, maybe with a lower FEV1 or some of these underlying conditions that maybe you've seen in the past flare concurrently, patients with frequent exacerbations, these are all risk factors for uh, disease progression and more severe exacerbations. Certainly, if they've been hospitalized in the last few months, honestly, for anything, but of course, for COPD-related concerns, then you might consider proceeding with admission. And then if they're on escalating degrees of their home oxygen, all of those would be proceed to emergency room for further evaluation. And then age turns out to be one of those associated with increased risk for poor outcomes. I think that probably just tracks along with some of those other factors that I mentioned and maybe not independently in isolation so problematic. And then, you know, on exam, you can also, as I mentioned, look for those other problems like heart failure and such. Are they able to maintain their nutritional status? Can they stay hydrated? Can they pick up their prescriptions? Can they self-rescue? Can they self-administer their meds? Do they have enough respiratory drive to inhale their inhalers right now? Are they just too short of breath and they need nebulizers? So some of those things I might consider as well. The ICU component, I, I usually would just, you know, you just decide that from the ER after initial treatment. Yeah, that totally makes sense. And I agree. This is like not an easy disease to manage, but sometimes you see patients and they can do it. They're like, oh, I do this inhaler. I put on my nebulizer. I know how to do it. And other people seem less uh, capable or able to do that. And so that's an important factor of it. And I love what you mentioned about the aeration. I just had this happen where someone thought a patient didn't have a exacerbation because there were no wheezes, but they were not moving any air whatsoever. And so really important physical exam finding. Yeah, that was a great pearl. Definitely agree. Thank you, Allison, for kind of stratifying how we could look at, you know, severity. And for our patient, you know, she definitely has an exacerbation based on the findings that you just discussed. Some of the things to highlight that you mentioned worth noting on physical exam. So she's tachypnic to the high 20s. She's tachycardic to the 120s. So it's um, sinus tachycardia based on the EKG monitoring that we have. 
and she was saturating 83% on room air and is now up to four liters nasal cannula. She remains oriented but has increased work of breathing and is using accessory muscles. On exam, she has diffuse wheezing, impaired aeration though, and prolonged expiration. So it sounds like this is a severe exacerbation based on what you were saying, Allison. And I think a lot of times as we're, you know, we're triaging these things, we're trying to think, you know, does this fit with the COPD exacerbation, determining severity, determining level of care. But I think we're also trying to treat as well. So Brad, I wanted to go to you next and see what your thoughts were. For this patient um, and in general, what are some of the mainstays of treatment for COPD exacerbations and what medications would you say that this patient should be getting urgently? Yeah, thanks. And and I want to kind of elevate something that that Allison said and has been even highlighted earlier about, you know, really the first step is is triage medicine, right? Assessing the patient's stability. And we are uh, to, to move away from this patient for just a second. So just humor me, you know, that I think we do do a lot of care now that's that's no touch, right? Because of patient distance or pandemics or whatnot. So I, I think that we can do a lot of these assessments to determine if somebody has a milder exacerbation or needs to go to the emergency department, you know, over that phone call, how dysnic are they? You know, so many of our patients now have pulse oximeters at home, which is such a valuable resource and asking them to throw that pulse ox on, what is their sat running? What is their heart rate doing? I mean, that you can really do some, really some effective triage. And sometimes if it's early mild exacerbation in an established informed patient, you can have them increase their nebulizer use and sort of turn the tide a little bit and maybe get them a, a dose of oral steroids at home to kind of keep them from having to go to the hospital. But, but certainly those patients, when you're hearing some warning signs, you know, severe symptoms, doc, this is really bad. I really can't catch my breath. They sound tachypnic. They're confused or drowsy, which is a very foreboding sign of hyper, acute hypercarbia. You know, those are patients who we need to send to the emergency room to triage differently or triage, you know, escalate through triage and treat quickly. Um, and as Allison, Allison said, you know, insufficient home support, so serious comorbidities, all those things actually matter. So in somebody like this patient who all of that has already happened and they're in the emergency department and it clearly sounds like, although they're stable-ish, they're having some respiratory distress, right? And, and I think that the first things we want to do is are correct the immediate causes. So, so oxygen, 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 right? So that's important. So she's got evidence of hypoxemia. We've now restore, repaired that basically with four liter nasal cannula oxygen. So that's an early first therapy. It's going to happen before anybody, you know, EMS will do this or, you know, often the patients will do it themselves. But, and then I think early on giving the patient some short acting bronchodilators often, you know, nebulized uh, is going to be the most effective form. Uh, as Allison alluded to, and I have a strong interest in this area of inspiratory flow. So when patients have acute exacerbations, they become acutely hyperinflated. So now their respiratory muscles, their diaphragm is very flat. Their lungs are overexpanded. They can't inspire on inhalers that require sufficient inspiratory flow. So meaning they just can't suck hard enough because they're living at a basically breathing at total lung capacity. So that's when nebulized therapies really become the key um, intervention early on. So this could be short acting beta agonist, uh, you know, SABAs or SAMAs as well. Um, and then getting those patients a dose of steroids, especially if they're bronchospastic. Um, you know, I sort of think about steroids as treating the inflammation and antibiotics treating the purulence of the sputum. So if somebody's wheezy or more foreboding, they're not wheezing at all, but they're clearly trying to wheeze, getting them some steroids is going to be important. They're going to be effective early on to really try to decrease that inflammation. And I will say, it will, you know, most patients who come to the emergency department that have this degree of respiratory impairment, they do warrant, um, you know, antibiotics. You know, I think there's some triage we can talk about, about getting a chest X-ray and a, a white blood cell count, you know, those sorts of things to sort of understand if there's a concomitant infection. But 
But I don't think that many people will fault somebody for an initial early antibiotic course, which maybe with some stewardship down the road, you can pull that back pretty quickly or narrow it. The other big thing to think about, and it's sort of alluded to in this patient's case is, are they having impending respiratory failure, right? So the, the, you know, the, the, the worst thing is if somebody has to be intubated because they're acutely hypercarbic, they're so bronchospastic that they can't blow off their carbon dioxide. And that could often be assessed by what does their accessory muscle use look like? Are they diaphoretic? It's a kypnic, but certainly getting a blood gas early in their presentation to understand, do they have acute hypercarbic respiratory failure? Because in that setting, it's, you know, medical malpractice not to try non-invasive ventilation unless there's contraindications. So non-invasive ventilation, by that I mean BiPAP uh, predominantly, so bi-level positive airway pressure, um, to help augment their respiratory uh, limitations, to reduce that CO2, that's really what's going to save their life. Um, and, and I think that, you know, there's certainly contraindications to non-invasive ventilation. So somebody who's obtunded, they can't protect their airway, you know, so if they were to, to you know, to vomit or something, they're, they're going to aspirate, you know, somebody who's got, you know, facial issues, uh, concern for overdose, any sort of mental status, um, all those things would be contraindications. But in the absence of contraindications, if you have documented acute hypercarbia, non-invasive ventilation should be one of the first things that somebody reaches for to try to turn that patient away from needing an intubation. Yeah, that's an amazing point. I think we're in the future, we definitely have to have an episode about non-invasive ventilation, CPAP, BiPAP, and high flow. But one of the things that you said so eloquently is like there are few indications that are more proven than hypercapnia in the setting of COPD exacerbation for having being on non-invasive. So great thing for everyone to consider. So I wanted to follow up on some of the treatment questions too. There are a few questions I feel like always come up, uh, sort of uh, these are rounds type questions. I feel like everybody sort of gets these treatments and then we're discussing it rounds later. And one is about steroids and steroids and COPD, uh, how much of it do you need, how long, things like that. So I wanted to get your expert opinion. Are there guidelines or studies that you really turn to when thinking about steroids and COPD exacerbations? Yeah, this is a, this is a great question. And you're absolutely right that every... Every time on rounds, and I, I'm, this is the true story. I was actually just in the hospital a couple hours ago seeing one of my patients that was being cared for by a general medicine team. And they're like, so how long are the steroids? How much should we give them? So this is, this is a real question. And the beauty is there's not a lot of data. You, despite the fact that we, you know, steroids are the cornerstone of therapy for COPD exacerbations, less than 20 randomized controlled trials, right? Less than 20. So not that many. So yeah, look, if, if you give steroids compared to a placebo, it absolutely decreases the odds of treatment failure by probably 50%, if not more. Uh, it, uh, steroids help improve early lung function. They actually, there's no convincing data that they impact mortality in randomized controlled trials. But I think that people, you know, appreciate the downstream effects of steroids that may reduce hospital length of stay, need for non-invasive ventilation, and probably there's some indirect measures on mortality that I think there's benefit. Um, there's actually been no, no difference in the studies that head to head that have compared IV to oral steroids. So it probably doesn't matter how you give them the steroids as long as they can absorb it. Right. And so I think that's a factor that we have to think about as far as specific, as far as specific guidelines. So that I mentioned that global initiative for obstructive lung diseases or gold. Remember, this is a treatment strategy. This is not a guideline. It's consensus based. So just be aware that we don't like to think of it as a guideline. There, there is also the uh, European Respiratory Society, American Thoracic Society Management of COPD Exacerbations Guideline, which was published in the ERJ in 2017. So those are probably some of the good resources to think about. Gold is sort of a treatment strategy. 
in the ERGA ATS document in 2017. So what do they say? So, you know, they recommend some dose of prednisone 30 to 40 milligram range, right? We're not treating cerebral edema dosing, right? So, you know, 30 to 40 milligrams of oral prednisone for hospitalized patients. You can do the same dosing with an IV formulation. You know, that's reasonable if they're GI tract, if and their, their mental status intact, probably doing oral is just as effective. Um, interestingly, there are some, inter- some data about using nebulized budesonide as an alternative for milder exacerbations of patients who've been hospitalized. So we think about all the bad stuff with prednisone, right? So the hyperglycemia, the hypertension, the uh, not sleeping at night in the hospital that leads to delirium, all those things. There's some interesting data about using nebulized budesonide and maybe even increased like lava ICS at the onset of upper respiratory tract infections. But I think those are probably a little bit more on the fringe, especially for hospitalized patients. So early on, give them some sort of steroid, probably in that 30 to 40 milligram dose or equivalent IV. doesn't really matter, oral IV, at least from the way I look at the data. And then after they've kind of stabilized, you know, they're not escalating to the ICU. You know, the the question is, well, how long do we actually treat them, right? You know, is it five days, 21 days, et cetera. So most of the guidelines suggest a short course defined somewhere between nine to 14 days, probably very, you know, I think, there are some studies that have looked at shorter courses probably have the same effect without the side effects. And I'll talk about that in a second, but most of the data is pretty low quality evidence, just to be aware. We aren't cardiologists, right? We don't have 10,000 people and know which statin dose, but I wish we were. But a good study to know is what's called the REDUCE study. This was JAMA study published in 2013. It was a randomized controlled trial, kind of what I consider one of the best informing trials. And they, they looked at patients coming to the ER with an exacerbation, just like this patient. They got prednisone 40 milligrams for five days, or they're randomized to 14 days. No difference in time to next exacerbation, no difference in mortality, but those who got 14 days of prednisone, more hypertension, more hyperglycemia. So if you want to make the argument for five days, you've got some data for it from the reduced trial. Um, Gold suggests, again, that five to seven day duration, ERS, ATS says somewhere under 14 days. My practice, and I'm lucky, I have some resources like my nurses who will call patients after I started therapy. You know, we generally will do, if they're improving, 40 milligrams for five days and then reassess. And if they're fine or they're back to near their baseline, they're done. If they're not improving, then maybe slowing down a taper for five or, five or seven more days. Not necessarily evidence-based, but that's sort of the best hodgepodge I can kind of come up with. Yeah, that's great. Go ahead, Alice. Speaking of non-evidence-based practices... <laughs> So I probably shouldn't mention this, but because you brought up on-demand steroids for patients with COPD, you know, we know we can do this in asthma. I've been using that a little bit in my patients who have the milder exacerbations triggered by wildfire smoke because it's just this constant trigger and exposure that it's very difficult for them to avoid and it can extend for days and days and days. And so it's almost like, you know, can we calm down a little bit of that inflammation maybe avoid an outpatient oral prednisone course. And so that's been something I've been trying a little bit, but yeah, maybe not appropriate for this podcast. So No, I love that. That's very cool. And our exacerbators may be eosinophilic as well. So so there may be, you know, some biological plausibility for that approach. But but to Allison's point, you know, the the asthma literature about sort of up titrating lava ICS during an exacerbation, it's really interesting to think about how that may carry over to COPD. Again, different processes, one's largely eosinophilic, but they're both sort of triggered, they're both glucocorticoid responsive. So it's interesting to think about, you know, down the road, I suspect we may have some randomized controlled trials looking at this treatment approach in COPD exacerbations to avoid the systemic effects of steroids. 
Yeah, I really like thinking about the the differences and similarities between the two disease processes we see. And I love, as you also mentioned, sort of like local exposures. Like I would never think of wildfire smoke, but obviously that's a huge thing that you're dealing with out there. Yeah, last year was particularly problematic just with the sustained duration. We we just would have kind of these fog domes just sitting on us for a while. So so I thought I've I've tried to use that a little bit in my patients. And just to follow up with one question, so Brad mentioned some of these times where we and we've all done this sort of where you're we're stretching the evidence, we're sort of doing these tapers, prolonged tapers and prolonged durations, especially for people who seem to not be recovering well. Allison, what situations do you find yourself like most often deviating from those standards or or using a more prolonged taper of steroids for these patients? Yeah, I might think about a more prolonged taper in someone who has like an asthma COPD overlap. And so if they've had, you know, longstanding asthma prior to ultimately developing COPD, maybe they had childhood asthma and then smoked as an adult type of thing. Or they're still just experiencing a lot of chest tightness, wheezing at that follow-up, like Brad mentioned, um, might consider a prolonged taper in that scenario. Sometimes I think about it in patients with obstructive lung disease that may not necessarily be tobacco-related, which is a bit off-topic maybe for the purposes of today, but they still do get characterized or flagged as COPD sometimes, so maybe in that category as well. And then in the patients who, for whatever reason, are on chronic oral corticosteroids, careful attention to management of their steroids may be, may be needed. Definitely, if they get admitted to the ICU, they may need stress dose steroids. So just keeping in mind their background maintenance regimen when you're managing them on the inpatient side is helpful. And then for, I might aim for like that lower end of the dose or the duration that Brad outlined um, in patients who have had more severe side effects to their corticosteroids. Um, so uncontrolled diabetes or severe mood dysphoria, fluid retention or heart failure, hypertension, things like that. For people with the viral triggers, so they've had a viral pneumonia that's maybe tipping them off, I really do want their immune system to try to fight off that infection as much as possible early on. Um, So that might be another person in whom I sort of tailor or try to reduce that dose and get away with as little as possible. Maybe try the inhaled steroid like we we talked about. Thanks so much, Allison and Brad. This has been such a great discussion. And I feel like, yeah, I, I think I had some of these similar discussions on Mickey rounds last week, specifically one of our respiratory therapists joined for rounds and she brought up whether or not we should think about doing inhaled budesonide, which, you know, I, I don't think we think of that much, but it was definitely a, a good discussion point and definitely the the duration of steroids. Support. But I, I like your comment, Brad, that you can you know maybe set five, but always reassess. So listeners, you can always reassess um, and, and decide from there. You don't have to have the whole duration um, on first meeting. But I think this will be great. And I think hopefully our listeners will sound very informed time they encounter this on their rounds. Some other common questions that come up are about antibiotics. And Brad, I know that you mentioned antibiotic stewardship and the importance of that. Allison, I wanted to see you know, when do you like to use antibiotics for patients coming in with COPD exacerbations and what what helps you decide whether or not to start them? Yeah, I think we alluded to some of this earlier. I, I do consider antibiotics in the patients who have more of that chronic bronchitic increase in their cough and their sputum purulence or their sputum volume. Even if they're outpatients, those I would treat with antibiotics and then sort of mapping the steroid prescribing to chest tightness, wheezing, hypoxia. And and then for patients who have more moderate or severe exacerbation that are requiring hospitalization or healthcare utilization, we know that early antibiotics and timely initiation of antibiotics is probably more important than 
what and when. So um, in those patients, I, I probably would also consider antibiotics too. It's a little bit harder to, to pin down in that scenario because if they're having an exacerbation that's triggered by one of their comorbidities, then I might not always give antibiotics on the inpatient side. So I can't say that environment always always triggers an antibiotic prescription, but but generally so. As far as what I might consider, just keeping in mind what their background regimen is. So if they're always on azithromycin, that's not going to be something that I'll use because I'll, I know that they'll probably have a resistant organism to that antibiotic. And then the other couple pillars of antibiotic selection would be, you know, do they have known pseudomonas or have you checked for it? And then, or do they have just risk factors for, for potential pseudomonas? So sometimes you get consulted on people, oh, this patient has COPD exacerbation, they're not getting better. And, and you can clearly tell that they, it's an antibiotic uh, failure. And then lastly, I think as far as beyond azithromycin and pseudomonal coverage, I kind of follow local guidelines. I think those can vary by, you know, what your antibiogram looks like. Um, Brad mentioned maybe looking at some other markers to help triage some of that. But so for patients with risk for poor outcomes, again, lower lung function, more frequent, more severe exacerbations, hospitalizations, hypoxemia, comorbidities that are pretty severe, like heart failure, these patients you might probably cover with antibiotics and with the right clinical scenario as an outpatient pretty consistently. Risk factors for pseudomonas colonization, if you haven't already grown it, would be patients with incredibly low lung function, like an FEV1 less than 30% predicted. That probably relates to their degree of lung damage and maybe also their frequency of infections requiring treatment in the past. Certainly patients with bronchiectasis on imaging, oftentimes over time they'll grow pseudomonas. So if I see bronchiectasis, even if we haven't cultured pseudomonas yet, I might consider covering that. And then if they've had broad spectrum antibiotic coverage in the last few months, is this just recrudescence of that prior flare-up that never really fully was resolved? So considering pseudomonal coverage in that scenario. And then there's some data to suggest that um, in patients with chronic systemic glucocorticoid use that they're at risk for pseudomonas and you could consider empirically covering them and then also culturing while admitted. Thanks so much, Allison. And I think that's a great teaching point, you know, definitely determining what antibiotics they're on. As you mentioned, if someone's on chronic azithro, you know, continuing the course of azithro may not may not be optimal. So I like how you provided some additional suggestions. In addition, I'll open this up to Allison or to Brad. It looks like for antibiotic, you use a variety of things to, to determine whether or not to start them. But what about any laboratory testing um, that may help triage your decision? You know, things like CRP or procalcitonin come up sometimes, and I didn't know your thoughts were about those. I tend not to use those in my decision making. I follow like physical exam and symptom reporting. I know that some there's some data to suggest those can be helpful in patients um, in determining antibiotic appropriateness for pneumonia. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, there's, there's, you know, for every positive study that shows you can use pro procalcitonin to end your antibiotics early, there's a negative study that balances that out. So I, I generally don't know that the predictive value of the test is powerful enough to change my treatment regimen. I mean, actually, the thing that has pretty good sensitivity and specificity for bacterial load and sputum is the color of the sputum. So if somebody still has a lot of color and a lot of thickness to their sputum, which is, you know, as a pulmonologist, we should be comfortable discussing sputum, um, uh, you know, that's, that's a pretty good predictor that they have a high bacterial load. But I think short of that, we're less left with symptomatic resolution is, is what I generally follow, much like Allison does. That's great. I like the sputum. I was just doing that the other day. I was suctioning a patient and getting up like really good, healthy sputum. And so it was like, oh, doesn't that gross you out? I was like, no, I love this. Let's keep going. <laughs> uh, you know, you found your right place. 
Yeah. <laughs> so that's what it does. Like, so our patient was given stack nebulizers in the ED. She was given 125 of IV methylpred, which you know we kind of discussed, maybe higher than the normal doses we see, but actually see that quite quite often. She had a chest X-ray and impossible new opacity, so she was started on ceftriaxone and azithro. She is not on chronic azithro, and she was uh, on her supplemental oxygen. Her blood gas after all this was not bad, 7.3444 on a VBG. Um, and after the initial bronchodilator, she was really feeling better. But she was still on oxygen, getting IV antibiotics, so she was planned for admission. And then I think one question that comes up commonly that I think doesn't have a ton of weight, but it's still a question that comes up all the time is what do we do with our home COPD regimen? So Brad, do you have a, a, a go-to answer for this about what we do with their meds and does it depend on the category of med that she's on? Yeah, you're, you're hitting on all the key questions that come up on every inpatient rounds. And this is another one that we just don't have a lot of guidance. But I think the reality is that in somebody who's in, a, in the early or middle stages of an acute exacerbation, that it's reasonable to stop their home regimen. You know, they're getting hopefully probably a, a Saba, Sama nebulized. They're getting IV steroids. So and theoretically, they're getting the treatments that they would be often be getting from their home LABA, ICS, LAMA inhaler. But I think that what we often do a bad job of, and again, maybe this is one of those, another one of those things that I just like to beat down, like the lung stroke concept, is that you know we don't reinstitute their home regimen and give them kind of a reasonable road test in the hospital before they leave. So remember, these patients, when they leave, they're often not 100%. They still have some degree of airflow limitation that's worse than their baseline. Um, you know, they, they may not be able to use the inhalers that they used effectively previously. Um, and as I mentioned, uh, you know, sort of this notion of peak inspiratory flow. The other issue is we actually don't do a good job of assessing, do they need an escalation of their therapy? So somebody who comes in on a LABA ICS and gets hospitalized should be discharged on triple therapy with LABA ICS and LAMA. You know, we need to be escalating patients therapy after these life-threatening events. And I think we really have a huge missed opportunity there. Um, you know, our, our hospital tries to sort of quote unquote road test people to make sure that on their home regimen, they still feel okay. Because the worst thing to do is have them on NEBS four times a day and IV steroids, and then send them home on their dry powder inhaler and a little oral prednisone. And they find out they just can't sufficiently use that and they're right back in the hospital. So it's sort of a missed opportunity there as well. Yeah. yeah, that's so helpful to review all the things that we would do for this patient when they're leaving to try to prevent the next exacerbation. That's great, Brad. And I feel like you're getting some of the, the more controversial questions, but we have, we have to leave one for Allison. So Allison, this patient had an exacerbation in the past year. This is her second one. Um, Allison, how are you thinking um, about this patient with COPDs who's recovering from an exacerbation? How does this change your conceptualization of them and their overall prognosis? So a few thoughts. I mean, one, this would put them into the category of being a frequent exacerbator. So two or more exacerbations in the last 12 months or one with um, requiring hospitalization. So that would bump up their gold category. I like Brad's comments about giving, giving us a chance during the hospitalization to really reassess their outpatient therapy. So in addition to looking at, you know, do we need to escalate the pharmacotherapy up to like a triple therapy for a gold D category patient? You know, what are we doing with their tobacco cessation? How can we be supportive in that regard? Have they been vaccinated appropriately? Do they understand inhaler technique? Has their formulary changed? Are they now using some other device they don't know how to use? Can we get them on an HFA that can pair with a spacer to really help them out? Do they know how many puffs of their medication they take per dose and how many times per day and what's a maintenance therapy. 
this I go over every visit and I'm often surprised that it's fallen off the wayside. So um, when, you know, when the insurance formularies change and someone gets switched over, they may not realize they're actually, it's actually two puffs twice a day. So revisiting a couple of those things um, might help calm down this pathway of frequent exacerbations. And then, you know, we've, We've reiterated a few times now just the role of comorbidities, and and I consider myself like a poor man's cardiologist, so I have no problem getting that ball rolling and initiating therapy or even just basic workup to try to bridge until maybe a patient can see another second subspecialist. If a patient has chronic bronchitis and is also a frequent exacerbator, you could consider some other add-on therapies, and there are studies underway to look into this. So the Reliance study is uh, randomizing patients to chronic oral azithromycin versus reflumolast for chronic bronchitics with frequent exacerbations with an aim to reduce those. Each of those has been shown independently compared to placebo to reduce exacerbations. And this study is looking at whether one is preferred versus the other. It's a patient-centered pragmatic study, so patients can switch switch therapies or dose reduce um, based on basically side effect profile, but that might be something our site is considering this for patients while they're admitted. So if they're admitted, we'll approach them about the study at that time and we can either initiate prescription at time of discharge or set them up with close follow-up. But I would say with regard to your comments for prognosis, frequent exacerbations does put this person at risk for a lot of bad things. So lower poor health health status, accelerated lung function decline, maybe they didn't even recover back to their baseline. Oftentimes that's the case. Worsened quality of life and increased risk for future exacerbation and future hospitalization, all of which are going to confer greater risk for mortality. So I think that, you know, we've really tried to highlight here today just how harmful these um, admissions can be. And Bob, Bob and Wasim last week talked about a bunch of those things as well, you know, inhaler technique, pulmonary rehab, uh, considering azithromycin or flumalast. One thing we didn't touch on last week, and Brad, you mentioned the importance of non-invasive in the acute setting for an acute exacerbation. I know that there's a, also an important thing to consider chronically for our patients with COPD and hypercapnia. So could you talk a little bit about this and when we should consider this uh, in the chronic outpatient setting for our patients? Yeah, absolutely. And I think as you've identified, it's important to separate out sort of um, acute non-invasive inhalation to rescue somebody who's got acute hypercarbia. But as we know, many patients with COPD, when they're in a stable state, have chronic hypercarbia. You could define it as a arterial PCO2 of greater than 45 millimeters of mercury, for example. And again, this is not when they're having an exacerbation, right? So the other clue there is their serum bicarbonate, maybe 30 or 32, suggesting they're chronically compensating, even when they're having a normal day walking around the house. And so there are some guidelines, and full disclosure, I was one of the co-chairs of the recent guidelines from 2020 about this, that looked at what is the role of non-invasive ventilation in stable COPD patients with chronic hypercarbia. And, you know, I won't go through all the data, but there's a decent amount of data, at least enough to make some, some reasonable recommendations that actually in patients with stable COPD, again, with hypercarbia, with a PCO2 of greater than 45, not during an exacerbation. So maybe you check a blood gas if it's feasible four to six weeks after they've been hospitalized, um, that, that using nocturnal non-invasive ventilation can actually improve their long-term outcomes. Um, Importantly, many of our patients with COPD can have concomitant obstructive sleep apnea. 
right? So this sort of overlap syndrome. So with what was recommended from the guidelines, one of the things that came out of those was that for your patients with chronic hypercarbia, you should screen for obstructive sleep apnea. And that could be through a stop bang questionnaire um, or one of the other standardized validated um, uh, questionnaires for obstructive sleep apnea. And if they have signs of obstructive sleep apnea or symptoms of obstructive sleep apnea rather on their screening, then they should probably undergo a sleep study to evaluate that further to determine if they need titration of their non-invasive ventilation. But we do think that using non-invasive ventilation chronically to try to reduce that CO2 retention long-term probably is associated with with outcomes. And that was the rec one of the key recommendations of, from that clinical practice guideline that was published in 2020. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brad and Allison. This has been an amazing last hour feel like there's so many teaching points. And what we love about Home Peeps is that you can you can stop and re-listen in case you can't get them all at one time, because I feel like I have to continuously do that. But we always, as always on Home Peeps, we want to wrap up um, with one key point for our listeners to be aware of. I think for mine, I really like, I guess it was insightful or for me, but Allison, you said that, you know, up to 50% of COPD exacerbations could be missed. I think I realized that number was that high. Perf, what about you? Yeah, I, th I think the one that I just always think is interesting and I forget about at times is the thinking about the inspiratory flow and which medicines are going to be effective when you have a low inspiratory flow, either because you have severe advanced disease or because you have an exacerbation and then to maybe not rely on sort of dry powder inhalers in those, in those situations. So something that I'll remember going forward. Brad, anything that our listeners should take away? Yeah, my new trademark term, apparently. Um, you know, the, just remember the notion of a lung stroke, right? So when you're sitting or standing across the bed from a hospitalized exacerbation patient. If they haven't required non-invasive ventilation, they have a one four chance of being dead in the next year. So this is a real event and it should be accepted that this is just part of the normal disease process. And Allison, what about you? I think mine would just be that COPD is heterogeneous disease. And so a one size fits all approach might not be best. And so really taking the time to be curious, inquisitive, ask questions, tailor your approach and reassess as you go. We'll, we'll keep you curious and engaged with patients for one of our very common diseases in America and causes for hospitalization and recurrent hospitalization. I think sometimes we lose a little bit in, of engagement in that regard. Great. Uh, those are great key points for us to end on. Before we wrap up, uh, we just want to say we're having an unbelievable time on Poem Peeps here with our ATS Clinical Problems Assembly collaboration. I know you're both very heavily involved in the CP Assembly. Could you just tell us a little bit about your roles and the things that you think our listeners should definitely explore with ATS or, or with the CP Assembly specifically? Allison, go ahead. Yeah, so I'm a member of the Clinical Problem Planning Committee, and so I've been doing that for a couple of years. It's a great opportunity to meet other people at other institutions who have similar research or clinical interests. I previously co-chaired the Environmental, Occupational, and Population Health Early Career Working Group with Peggy Lai, uh, and that was, I think, by my first real kind of self-owned role in, within the ATS. And again, just gave me a great chance to get to know people at other institutions. We did some peer mentorship. I really found it a helpful way to learn how to navigate ATS as an organization and then ATS as a conference. I'm on now part of the ATS guideline methodology training program. So hoping to get involved with an obstructive lung disease focused program or paper in the, in the near future. I like to nominate people for ATS awards. I think that, you know, we receive so much from our mentors 
in my case, Brad Drummond and Bob Wise and Nadia Hansel and Malin Han. I mean, I could, the list could go on, but, <laughs> but it's a great chance to say thank you. So I would put a plug in also for thinking about saying thank you to your mentors through those awards. Yeah. I mean, I think there's so many awesome opportunities to get involved in ATS. And, and I think the beauty of ATS is that it's uh, it's enriched by its membership activities, right? So we're we're as good as the people that that are around us. Um, I've been fortunate to be involved uh, in ATS um, both on the planning committee, which is uh, what Allison's referring to, um, also on the program committee for our clinical problems assembly. And I guess I should back up. You know, there's there's several different assemblies. There's many different assemblies in the ATS, and they're often thematic based. And the one that tends to most of the COPD focused folks end up in is the clinical problems assembly. It also includes the interstitial lung disease, the cystic fibrosis, and a lot of our practitioners who see a lot of general pulmonary medicine. So that's kind of the umbrella for clinical problems assembly. And and again, I've been involved in the, the planning committee side and then the uh, program committee, which is involved with helping s organize all those abstracts and, and you know, select the abstracts and organize the seminars and, or the, the sessions for the, the International Con Congress. Um, I'll be moving up to the assembly chair position next year, but I, I think that it's there's a lot of great opportunities. So across each assembly, there are mentorship programs where you can get involved as a mentee. You can volunteer yourself to be a mentee or you can be a mentor depending upon where you are in your career. Um, clinical Problems has a women in clinical problems working group. So we try to have some um, some sort of focused groups that may may uh, bring people together. There's LGBTQIA uh, uh, interest groups as well at ATS. There's an early career professionals working group in clinical problems. So there's so many different opportunities and really they do probably fit wherever you are, no matter who's listening to this podcast. So I would encourage you to go to the American Thoracic Society website. There's a you can look for the assemblies, and within each assembly, there's some some guidance about different groups to get involved with. But lots of opportunities, and I certainly encourage you all to get involved. That's awesome. Thanks so much, Brad and Allison. And you know, yeah, I encourage um, all of those listening today definitely sign up to be a mentee, and hopefully, if you can make it in person to San Francisco for for ATS 2022, um, maybe you'll get paired with Allison or Brad. Um, and you can meet them in person. <laughs> really thank you for your time today and looking forward to this episode.